Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and with me, perhaps the most divisive figure in the UFO community and my good friend and the uh, host of the Mad Scientist podcast, Chris Coxwell. Chris, it's good to have you back, man. Thank you, Rob. It's a, it's, it's always a pleasure to be back, man. I am, yeah, I'm... I'm the most controversial, the triple H of UFO world right now. Just I'm controversial. People don't know if I'm a good guy. Am I a bad guy? I don't even know if triple H is still like a good or bad guy. Now. All I know is that when in, in the two thousands, when I watched wrestling, I didn't know what to think of him, but you know what, man, it's good times. He's divisive and I'm divisive too. Triple H. <laughs> he's the chief operating officer of the company now, so I think he's a bad guy, but, you yeah, know. I think that does make him a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, it's so interesting. Yeah, but, uh, Chris, you're, you're making, you're causing a lot of controversy this week, bud. You, you've made, uh, you made uh, a statement on Twitter. You, you are leaving the Galileo project, man. What's what's going on with that? I am. People are like, um, people are acting like I'm. First off, people are acting like I was in any way an important part of the Galileo project, which is just not true. Like, so as a as a research affiliate of the Galileo project, I essentially view my, I I viewed my role, or I guess my. Um, my part of the project basically is just giving public support for everything they were doing and what they were, what they were working on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I still do support their scientific efforts. I think the science teams are doing a really great job and I really, really hope that they do well in the future. But is anybody who has followed anything I've ever said or done on UFOs knows First off, I take very seriously the idea, or I try to take seriously the idea that, uh, you know, figures that get involved in this have a responsibility to the people who are, who make up the community and make up the, the people who actually like listen to the podcast and do the things with us. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't have a voice or have a role in this field if those people didn't support us and, and work with us and everything else. So... When I join something or when I'm part of an organization, I mean, you know, when when I was at MUFON, I, I do so with pretty strict mm -hmm. ethical and sort of value based judgments surrounding it. You know, yeah. I, I don't I don't just join stuff because I think it's going to be good for my career or or uh, interesting or whatever. Although I, I hope those things will be true, of course, like any normal human. I also try to hold myself to some to fairly. <laughs> If I tr if I go after somebody else for something like being part of a wacky group of UFO Scooby Doo people, I expect myself to do the thing I would want those people to do. Yeah. So I try not to be hypocritical, and I try to be very transparent, especially in this field that is just full of non-transparency. I try to be very transparent when I leave something, when I join something, what my reasons are, what my reasons aren't, etc. So, yeah, I, I left the Galileo project officially, uh, officially this week, mostly because I'm just kind of bored of the whole military UFO thing. Mm. I, I don't, you know, I mean, you remember when, when I started getting involved in this stuff in the public space and joining MUFON and, uh, you know, 
talking with people on podcasts and all that other junk, the only thing that I was one of the main things I was interested in was the the people themselves and why they believed these things and are, is there a way for us to bridge the gap between science and believers or skeptics and believers more effectively? Yeah. And that was always sort of the driving force for what I thought or what, why I wanted to be in this. And I, I guess I've sort of, and another part of it, and we've had discussions about this too. I think that a part of that is sort of a wrong mindset almost that I think a lot of skeptics come into this with which is the idea that your role as a skeptic should be to convince people to not believe certain things mm -hmm. that like it, it is morally correct or morally right to believe in science and materialism. And it is immoral or wrong to believe in UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoot and whatever. And I, I don't, I don't think that is true anymore. I, I don't know if I ever really believed it. I don't think I ever believed that the belief itself was immoral. Otherwise, I would not have started my podcast and talked to people and everything else. But I do think that the misuse of that belief is really easy, and that is immoral. Yeah. Yeah. Like, using it, using the fact that people believe in UFOs to sell to sell them conference tickets is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, or that even that itself isn't necessarily wrong if it's done for the right reasons. But I guess... Uh, exploiting them in bad faith is wrong. So yeah. sell, you know, PT Barnum selling people uh, a fake mermaid is clearly, I think ethically wrong. Even if the people who are there aren't necessarily harmed or want to believe it or whatever, you know, they're being exploited in some way. On the other hand, believing you yourself, believing that there's, um, you really have caught a mermaid you're just wrong then, right? But that that's not any kind of moral, there's no moral um, link there or any moral kind of failure there, in my opinion, I guess. So we're really off the beaten path now, Rob. We're really getting deep here. Um, so when, when I guess, when anytime I join an organization though, what I hope will happen or one of the things that I've, the reason I've been involved in this is to try and, like, I, I don't think people should believe exactly everything I believe because that that would be boring. It would not be right. And there's no I'm I'm not any smarter or better or whatever than anyone else. But I do think that people should call out those who are clearly. Clearly the P.T. Barnums, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, people that are clearly make just make them up. They're making it up to sell stuff. Um, or there's no good evidence for it or whatever. I do think that those people should be called out. And I also think that the UFO mythology on its own has been used and can be used in really negative ways if we just kind of let it exist on its own in this weird conspiracy theory space that it exists on in the internet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so... When it comes to like the Galileo project and everything else, I I don't know that I can have the critical voice that I think and I, I don't mean critical as in like important. I mean critical as in like critiquing. I don't know that I can critique the mythology of the field in the way that I think is right while still being a part of the Galileo project. 
Because I think in some ways the Galileo project now has become part of that mythology. I got you. You know, yep. they've they've brought on people and they have sort of they're not it's sort of the problem of I view a lot of UFO media figures as you as lobbyists for the UFO subject. <laughs> they don't they're, they're they're pushing their point of view out there to the public to try to gain political power and economic power and everything else because they, you know, and they might really think that looking for UFOs is an important thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some of us would agree with that maybe. But I think that if that is what is happening, that is, that is not coincident with science that does not play right or play well with scientific discourse and study. Yeah. And so I think that a group like any group that is involved in the subject has a has a moral responsibility to speak truthfully and plainly to the public about what they view is true and what they view is not true. And that's gotten really muddy. It's gotten really, really muddy. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a really, you know, the easy answer for why I left Galileo Project or why I said I would leave it or whatever I, I don't, I just, I'm bored. I'm bored of UFOs. I'm bored of military UFOs. I don't think that there's, um, you know, it, I, I look at this almost like a modern day satanic panic, what we're seeing in the media about UFO subject, about the UFO subject. Yeah. And I, if I got involved in this subject because I wanted to know, is there anything real to any of this? The only thing I've walked away with is, all of the people at the top are full of shit and the people at the, the people at the center of it, the people who have claimed I have had an experience. I can't explain it. It was scary. Those people are still the only source of good mystery and good information. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, you know that, I mean, I don't know, man. I hope, I hope the Galo project is successful. Mm-hmm. I really did like talking to a lot of the people that were there. I wasn't an important part. So it's not like me leaving is a huge deal. I didn't expect there to be this amount of interest in me just coming out and being like, I'm leaving this project. You know, um, I just don't, you know, I don't know. I've just always followed my conscience and it didn't feel right to be part of it anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Your interests don't align. You're, um, you have a certain standard and certain threshold that you follow. And, and that's something that I've always respected because uh, when we were in MUFON doing the, uh, you know, the IRB and stuff like that, you know, one of the big concerns was John Ventre. And, you know, that was a concern up front. And, you know, when uh, that concern became, you know, very prevalent, that's when we walked away. So it's completely understandable, man. I mean, you have a a certain set of, you know, expectations and morals uh, and values when it comes to this stuff. And, and, and that's completely understandable, especially if you want to come at it from a scientific perspective, because it, it just seems like a lot of the time when people say, uh, well, science should get involved. Science should get involved. I don't think a lot of people understand what the science incorporates or what that includes. Like, what is bringing science into a subject like that? What does that look like? And I don't think a lot of people understand that. I think they have this kind of notion in their head that it's, you know, contained to 
soil samples or or something like that. But uh, I I think expectation uh, it, when it comes to science is definitely different than the actual reality when it comes to the table with a project like that or you know a a, a project like Skyhub or something like that. You know? Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean. You can't do science in this field without, like, you know, the, imagine you were building a, you know, I always like to do kind of extreme examples for myself because I think they, the constraints that they give and kind of the, you know, the wackiness can kind of sometimes help you see things, uh, in a, in a different, more creative way than you would if you were just looking at it as the baseline level of stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I sort of thought to myself, well, okay. What if there was a Harvard think tank that was looking for witches, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Would I get involved in that just because it was through Harvard? Would I trust that just because it was through Harvard? Right. If they brought on people that were like the head witch hunters, you know, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust that. And there's just as much evidence for witches than there is for military UFO incursions, mm-hmm. you know? So, would I trust those two, you know, and I mean, that's that's a little bit facetious. There's more evidence for UFO incursions, of course, or UAP incursions. If, But for aliens, for the existence of aliens, right. there is no more evidence than there is for witches. Right. So, you know, the, that I think a lot of people when they a lot of people think that being part of groups like this is in a, is a good in itself and is something that you should you should want. But I don't – there are groups already doing research into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, right? They're called SETI. Right. And they've been doing great work for decades. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, um, there are people doing a lot of that stuff and looking for those techno signatures and everything else. And those groups, I think, do it in a way that is – you know, when when the people from SETI go to conferences, even if they're UFO conferences and talk to the UFO public – they are telling them the truth as they see it, as they think it, as they think it exists, mm-hmm. you know, and they're careful not to work with, uh, they're careful not to work with or not to embrace the sort of mythology side of things, because I think they recognize that there is a real, there's a difference between the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is a worthwhile endeavor and everything else. And throwing gasoline on the dumpster fire that is the UFO subculture. Mm-hmm. There, there's a real difference between those things. Yeah. And, you know, one of the major failures, I think, of science and scientists over the last, I mean, God, forever, is the inability to engage with the public in a way that lets them understand exactly what is happening. The reason people don't believe in vaccines or the reason people don't believe in climate change or, you know, any number of things is because they have become cultural issues, not scientific issues. Mm -hmm. And I think science just kind of putting its head in the sand and saying, like, well, we can ignore the cultural stuff because, you know, we're science and the truth, the perfectness of science will make it win out over time. Like, I have thousands of years of history to show you that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Galileo himself is evident that that is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that, that science doesn't win out over culture always. No. And 
um, you know, so it's a it's a really like you said, it's a much more complicated thing than just saying, you know, I'm going to find evidence of UFOs. Well, right. like, OK, let's say that an alien landed on the White House lawn. I would argue that a large portion of the UFO believing public, they would start off by being very excited, but the conspiracy theories would begin immediately. Mm hmm. And another mythology would form around that, that allowed those same beliefs to propagate. Yeah. That's the most interesting part to me. That is what I'm interested in. I'm mm -hmm. interested in the cultural side. So, you know, that's not what Galileo's interested in. Right. And that's cool. That's fine. <laughs> and I mean, know, it's difference of opinion. The the <laughs> cultural the cultural side is what really drives you know the people's interest in this UFO stuff, and and that's kind of what we're we're gonna get at today with today's episode is that uh, we're gonna be talking about like the early humanoid sightings of the uh, modern UFO age, and by modern UFO age, uh, we're talking uh, like 1947 uh, when Kenneth Arnold had his sighting. That's kind of the signpost, the the benchmark of the UFO era that we are in now, it's gone through changes over time, but uh, given that a lot of people look into, you know, past accounts of things and draw whatever they want from that. And that's perfectly fine. You, you do you in that situation. But um, uh, in this, uh, in this episode, we'll be focusing on 1947 to about 1954. Um, so, you know, we're talking about aliens today, Chris. <laughs> Woo! I love aliens, man. They're pretty. They're pretty damn great. So, you know, humanoid sightings, uh, sightings of you know what people would call aliens, weren't really fast to take off in this subject. Uh, and and even the the two earliest sightings of alien type beings didn't become more well known. More prevalent until about the 1960s but um the first humanoid sighting that we have actually occurred 29 days after the kenneth arnold sighting uh in brazil so you know, this is an interesting story that um it was initially published uh, in like august of 1947 not long after it happened and uh, it was printed in a larger publication in 1954 known as uh, O Cruzeiro, which uh, in Brazil was the publication that kind of ran the UFO stories for, for the public uh, for a long time. That's where the Antonio V.S. Boas case was printed in the uh, mid-60s. That's where the uh, Trinidad photos were published. Uh, and, and the Trinidad photos are uh, kind of one of the more famous early uh sets of ufo photos from brazil that shows kind of like a very hard to make out saturn looking object over an island um but the uh the first story here involves a uh, surveyor named jose c higgins and his surveying crew uh, and they were in the a remote location in southern Brazil, uh, which is interesting because uh, when you read a lot of the UFO accounts that come from Brazil, a lot of them come from the same areas of southern Brazil, uh, Belo Horizonte, 
Sal Francisco de Salas, which is where uh, Antonio Villas-Boas had his uh, encounter. There's stories of uh, people being abducted by aliens there. Uh, And there's also what they uh, refer to as... um, teleportation cases uh you see a lot of these like back in the 60s where basically people talked about seeing a ufo going on board a ufo and they were like quote unquote uh teleported being dropped off like a thousand miles away it's it's great man it's great Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh higgins uh he was uh crossing a field with uh some of his uh, his uh, staff there, and he he hears this high pitched whistling sound, uh, and it starts to pierce his ears, and that's when uh, Higgins and his coworkers saw this strange circular quote airship with protruding edges similar to those of a drug capsule. So automatically, I think people are going to be going to Tic Tacs here. You know, drug capsule, Tic Tacs, it's all the same thing. But uh, it started descending in their direction, and, and um, everyone except for Jose just ran for it. Uh, Which is hilarious, yeah, by the way. Yeah, yeah, like, everybody's <laughs> running, running away, Jose's just standing there in the middle of this field. UFO lands 150 feet away, and there's Jose, he's just standing there. He starts to approach it, which is another move, you know? And and the thing that they mention is that, despite the fact that this is 29 days after Kenneth Arnold and everything that was going on uh, in 47, that UFOs probably weren't as well known at this point in Brazil. Like, they the news hadn't made it down there yet, which may or may not be true. But Jose approaches this object, and he sees, like, this porthole... Uh, made of glass, and there's two figures in this object that are just staring at him. A short while later, one of the beings, uh, they turn their back to him, and the sound of a door hears it opening, and these three beings emerged, and the description of these things, they it doesn't make sense to me. I love it so much. Yeah, yeah, so... (laughs) Uh, if, if we're breaking it down, so their bodies were covered in a transparent suit, which looked like it was full of compressed air. So all I can think of is, you know, like, you know, like the Missy Elliott music video from back in the day or something like that. <laughs> uh, oh my God. <laughs> like you can see it. Can't you? You absolutely can see it. Of course you can. Yeah. It's the big, the big puff. Uh, what's it? <laughs> Yeah. Those jackets, like the North Face jackets, right? It's one of those. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So underneath the suit, though, they were wearing shirts, short pants, and sandals. Well, you got to be comfy. Yes. You can't travel the stars not comfy, right? So I get it. That's the way I look on an airplane. Yes. You know I mean? But the thing about their clothes was that they didn't look like... You know, uh, like the normal clothes that you would you and I wear made out of cloth. They look like they were made out of colored paper. So, you know, fashion friendly uh, on whatever planet they they are from. So on their backs, there was this like metallic box that seemed to be kind of part of the suit. And their heads were large and round. They had short hair. Their eyes were very large. They were round. And, you know, they just kind of, like, lacked all kind of facial hair. Uh, 
their legs were abnormally long, putting them at about seven feet tall. And despite this, they walked with incredible agility. Like, man, these aliens are out there. They're looking good. <laughs> yeah. They're looking good, man. What's what's so interesting about these early cases is they this is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. If if we if you know, this is not at all what we think in our head of what an alien looks like. No. Nope. These guys sound like they are coming. They sound like they are puppets out of Carnival. Yeah. You know, they they got these uh they got these super long spindly legs. They got big ass heads, big eyes, no hair, no eyebrows. They're wearing paper mache, not even paper mache, they're wearing like bright tissue paper clothing mm-hmm. and a, a, a big puffy, um, or it's not necessarily puffy, but a big, you know, like a, 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 they have like a shimmer to them because there's this transparent thing around them. They sound like, um, they sound like something you'd make in like this, the, you know, kindergarten, you'd make a doll mm-hmm. and then you'd laminate it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is what that is. Exactly. <laughs> so, these beings spoke amongst themselves, and though he couldn't understand them, he did say that their language sounded pleasant, which is always good. You don't want any harsh language with a species that you're meeting for the first time. I completely understand. Um, they formed a triangle around Jose, and one of the beings uh, had in his hand this uh, kind of like wand-type device, and he gestured for Jose to come on board the craft. Jose, though, he had a bunch of questions for these guys. He wanted to know where they came from. So one of the beings took that uh, wand thing and he drew a circle on, on the ground and then he drew seven other circles that he had presumed to be planets. The being pointed to the sky, meaning the sun, and he said that, and the word for the sun was apparently Alamo, which, you know... I remember the Alamo now a little more than I used to when I was a kid. So I appreciate that. I'm sorry. I just, I love that they, they always have like, for some reason, aliens always kind of speak like, you know, they basically speak English just a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always pointing to like star systems being like McDonald, <laughs> Burgor King. Mandy. Our, our <laughs> like capital is right. Happy Meal. <laughs> exactly. Like they're always, you know, McNugget. They're always like kind of sort of speaking English. And like, yeah, if they, they never, the words for stuff are never like made up, you know, clearly like I can't pronounce it. I don't know the guttural thing or whatever. Yeah. It's always just, it's always just English with a funny accent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the being then he pointed to the seventh circle that he drew and he called it Orke. So apparently they're from the planet Orke. Jose is just completely terrified at this point and he pulls out his wallet and he and he takes out a picture of his wife and he shows it to the beings and they just let him walk away, which is cool. He doesn't want to go to their planet, which you know, it's got to be a startling experience when they don't when they don't speak Portuguese they don't uh you can't relate to them at all so I I appreciate that they let him walk away and uh Jose he kind of retreats into the shaded area where he thinks that they can't see him 
And kind of like in a like a fairy tale kind of story, they start to frolic around. They jump up and down until they re-enter their ship, and it just you know takes off. It's it's very fairy tale esque, very fairy story in, in a way. Uh, just with uh, the the way that this story is structured, it seems like something that you know you a fairy story that you'd hear from Europe or something. It's a, it's, yeah, it's again, the gun being similar to a pipe, right? You think about like a magic wand, um, the, the colorful clothing and the weird kind of thinness and everything else and whatever, definitely very similar to a fairy sort of story. The thing I think is always funny too, is they, so they drew eight circles, Mm -hmm. right? And we're supposed to believe that, um, these are, these are some of those sort of, uh, what's the word? These are some of those historicity or historical kind of stories or differences that I think are really interesting to stories like this, mm-hmm. right? So they the aliens seem to suggest, if that's true, they drew eight circles on the ground, and they pointed, they said Alamo is the central one, so that's the sun. Mm-hmm. And then they go to the seventh one is Orky, the place that they're from. So they're from Uranus. Yeah. You know? Um, which is where it sounds like Higgins pulled this story from. <laughs> and uh, I'm just kidding. That's, that was a cheap shot at Jose Higgins. I apologize. Uh, I apologize, Jose Higgins. Put some respect on that man's name. He is no I'm longer sorry. with us. <laughs> um, but, like, so, but, you know, they're they're describing this, like, they're this not being, uh, they're essentially describing this, they're describing the solar system as having only planets, you know? Mm-hmm. And when did this happen? This happened in 47. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pluto was only discovered or, or really like not discovered, I guess I should say, but Pluto was only de- defined as a planet in like the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that Jose Higgins just wasn't up on his like astronomy? Could be. And so didn't know that there's actually nine objects that, f- that's, you know, circle the, the star that we have, right? Even though we don't call it a planet anymore. Or if you're you know? Zechariah Sitchin, there's 10, you know? Um, right. So, the, yeah, you know, it's it's a really interesting thing. Like, it's it's one of those, uh, what's the word? It's one of those areas of really interesting historical areas, right? The other thing is they tried to get him to go on the ship, mm-hmm. right? They landed, they got out of the craft, they kind of talked to him a little bit and everything. That doesn't happen in modern day UFO reports. No. Right, like they just beam you up, but at this time, and and actually a lot of the cases at this time period, the aliens always got out of the ship and were always like, "Come on, it'll be fun! Like we got we got science in there! Like let's go! Come on, man, it's right. gonna be wonderful! Come to our planet of naked humanoids!" Yeah, exactly. And um, I also think it's funny that the thing that made them go away was his picture of his wife. <laughs> yeah. They <laughs> they know? somehow understood, you know? Yeah. Oh no! If oh no, we can't do that to him. If he go, if he misses dinner, he's in a lot of shit. We can't. Uh, we can't. You know. Oh, we get it, man. Oh, women. Oh, assuming they have like two, you know, two genders as opposed to uh, what's the word? As opposed to it being a, you know, maybe the aliens are super duper. Uh, yeah, they're completely know, they're, gender fluid. Or I was gonna it, say, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. They're like, it, it's such a funny. It's just such a funny thing. And yeah, them coming down to being like Alamo, like. You know, it's, it's I don't know. It just sounds like a bad. Uh, it sounds like a bad uh, 
what's the word? It sounds like a bad acid trip. Yeah, it kind of does. It definitely yeah. does. You know, it just seems like probably someone slipped him maybe some LSD or something, and uh, he had a fun afternoon, you know, some uh, old school uh, MK Ultra kind of stuff. He's just having a weird day. <laughs> The thing I love too about um, the thing I love too about so I, one of the websites I went to about this case beforehand because actually this is one that I had never really I mean Rob you you know more UFO history than I could ever hope to even forget so th- these are cases that you know for some of these these are cases I hadn't really even necessarily looked into that hard before or heard of even. And on a website that I went to to get this, one of the links, you know how they have like the links at the bottom to like yep. share it to different social media or whatever? Yep. One of the links was to share it to LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, wait, in what, in what universe would I ever want to share this to my LinkedIn profile? Like, hey, everybody, look what I'm doing on the on, on the weekend here. This is what I read about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting. But yeah, I, I like this one. I I think it's, so fascinating and it seems like a little it seems like a little thing it seems like a little piece of the story but the the shift of the way aliens looked over mm-hmm. time yeah because you don't get we don't we don't really get cases like this anymore you know we don't get alien we don't we, we don't get aliens that look like goblins or you know uh that look like giant robotic humanoids that you know with claws and whatever yeah. or you know i mean we, we sometimes get like you know people say they look like bugs that's become a new that started to become a, a kind of a newer thing in the lexicon today that i've noticed is a lot more reports of of people or people will start saying they look like bugs as opposed to looking like the gray aliens yep um but you know we don't we don't get these like pinata aliens no we you don't know, they're they're covered in colorful paper <laughs> Um, big eyes, big heads, having a great time. Love it. Yep. Got absolutely thrilled. So, um, we have another humanoid sighting from 47 and this took place, uh, in August of 47 after Jose's, uh, encounter in, uh, the village of Raveo, which is near uh, a place called Villa Santina, which, uh, this case is called the, uh, Villa Santina case, I think is what they call it most of the time. But so the, uh, the witness here, his full name is Rapuzzi Luigi Johannes. So really bringing it with the name here. Just like a mama used to make. <laughs> Absolutely. Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. Here's the thing. This guy was a well-known painter and a well-known writer in mostly in Italy, but also in Europe. Chris, can you guess what kind of books that he liked to write? Hmm. Science fiction? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, he was well known uh, around this time through Europe uh, for his uh, uh, science fiction stories that would appear, uh, I think, in, in mostly in collections, but he did write some novels. But yeah, that's, that's the thing about Johannes here is um, he is well known uh, throughout Italy as... A science fiction writer, but we we won't we won't judge too too harshly just yet. But uh, there there's the mythology of this case up front is kind of misleading because uh, you know the the 
the Cliff's Notes of this story up front is that Johannes, he was out painting. He sees this uh, UFO land, and uh, these aliens get out, and he waves over to them. They see it as a threatening gesture. They zap him with something, and they steal his easel. The thing was, is that he wasn't painting at the time. He was actually, uh, he was interested in amateur geology, and he actually had like a rock pick with him. He had a satchel full of things, and he was uh, headed up, this case took uh, place in August 14th, 1947, so he was heading up this short mountain stream that was called uh, Chiarso, I think is what it's called. I will butcher names all day long. But uh, he basically follows this clump of fir trees and they eventually uh, emerge onto this rocky riverbank. It's um, uh, at 50 meters ahead of him once he uh, comes through the trees. He sees this, uh, quote, large lenticular object of a vivid red color. I dig... This is the true sport model right here. It's in red. You know it's the sport Mm -hmm. model. So... You know, he puts on his glasses and he's fully able to discern a disc-shaped object composed of a metal that looks like, you know, kind of the the metallic uh, toys of the day. You know, if you if you saw old school like, um, you know, fire trucks and stuff like that, the the same type of metal. Uh, even if you watch restoration videos on YouTube, like I do, when I need to escape from the world and I just need something calming. Uh, it, it looked similar to that. So it also had this telescoping antenna, uh, similar to what a car has. And it was about 10 meters or 32 feet wide. And it was allegedly embedded into the side of this mountain that he was climbing, which is also another strange feature because it just seems like these aliens are bad drivers. So they crashed into a mountain. <laughs> Um, so Johannes, he, he continues upward and he, uh, he decides he wants a better look. So he sees these two, what he calls boys at the time, uh, that are, uh, not that far away. They were very short and he yells to them and they start to take these small strides towards him. But the thing is, is like their hands and arms don't move when they walk and neither do their heads at all. So that's, that's definitely... A bit off-putting, but they were about uh, 90 centimeters tall, or about three feet, and they wore dark blue-colored overalls that were kind of transparent, a little transparent, and they had, like, red collars on them, and their belt was this kind of vivid red color, too, and their heads were pretty big, you know? That's, that's a feature of aliens. Their heads, they're generally big, larger than humans. And uh, they have no hair, but they're wearing a brown ski cap. So I think, you know, you know, shit's going to go down right now. That ski cap is an indicator right there. They're no, they had really long noses, too, which is a fun feature. Uh, I, I enjoy that. Uh, they had uh, <laughs> they had like small mouths, but they would like open them. And when they did, it reminded him of like a fish. Like, uh, you know, breathing in, uh, taking in water. Um, and their eyes were enormous. They were yellow. Uh, and they had kind of a small pupil to it. So, Johannes, he was just kind of standing there, stunned. He, he didn't really know what to do, but he had his pick with him. And uh, 
he just started waving him off, you know, trying to get him to, you know, go away. And he started calling to him in what he called an angry voice. And interpreting this as a threatening gesture, and I mean, who wouldn't? I, I definitely would. One of the beings raised a hand to its belt, and from it a puff of smoke shot out. Uh, and this action put Johannes on his ass. Like, he fell backwards. And he said it felt like a violent electrical shock. Uh, so I'm I'm picturing that scene in Ghostbusters 2 when Vigo hits him, you know, with that weird blue energy kind of crap. I, I, I picture Johannes just, like, laid out like that. It's great. See, I'm 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 seeing pocket oh, I'm seeing the aliens going like you know pocket sand, and then they throw the dust, and he falls over because he's very very concerned <laughs> about what's going on. So, Johannes, he doesn't have any strength in his limbs, but these beings continue to approach him. He's trying desperately to sit up, and they reach down and they pick up his uh, his small pick, and. Um, the thing is, is like it's taller than the being itself, so uh, you know that's that's kind of funny. Uh, apparently, their hands had eight fingers, which is a lot. That's excessive. Not gonna lie. Well, what's what's especially weird about the hands? So they had eight fingers, but it's it's four fingers. Like the, he said that four of them were like four of them were basically yeah, thumbs. Yeah. He had a lot of thumbs. So he had four thumbs and then four, like, I guess he, yeah. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah. D- very interesting hand morphology here. And, uh, so they pick up his, uh, rock pick and they return to their craft. And, uh, a few minutes later, the craft sh- shoots up out of the rock, which apparently caused like a cascade of stones to, to fall down the into the mountain stream and the ship initially started to move towards johannes uh and he's you know just desperately trying to get up trying not to be taken by these weird alien beings um but eventually it tips away and it shoots off into the air uh and it and it kind of did it with a like a blast of wind that accompanied it so by the time it had departed, it was about 9.14 in the morning, and, and Johannes claimed that he didn't get his faculties back till about three hours later. He was just laying there for a while. And he examined his belongings, and he found that the aliens had stolen not just his rock pick, but an aluminum fork and his lunch. So, you know, <laughs> this, this, is, this is low. This is high school right now. This is, uh, you know, stealing your lunch money kind of stuff, and... Uh, new kids at school. This is this is this is my this is my horror. This is my terror. <laughs> it really got they really got him good. Yes. So he reaches. He heads back to the town of Raveo, and by two p.m., he was just out. He he took a big ass nap. You know. So the next day, he went back to the spot to find his pick. He was hoping in that he was going to find it because. This was a very special pick, and uh, there is a great quote here. Uh, Quote, I believe that that old pick of mine is now in a museum on some other planet. I hope that somebody up there is trying to decipher the marks cut in the handle, my name and a mountaineering motto, and a pair of stylized alpine flowers and an eagle, and I hope they rack their brains to a standstill trying to make it out. (laughs) End quote. What's... What's so interesting is so have you actually have you looked up any of his art? I've no, I've never seen his art. Okay, 
So he, his art is kind of, it's weird. It's like, uh, so first off, all of his UFO art or all of his kind of science fiction art happened after his setting <laughs> or after, after his, uh, after his, his, oh my God, what's the word? After his sighting, okay. right? Yep. So all of it happened afterwards. The stuff he kind of painted before is very, um, I guess I would call it, I guess I would call it sort of almost, uh, almost like it's abstract. It's very weird. Okay. It's very, very weird. Right. So there's one that he did called, uh, Dinamismo di un nudo from 1923 that you can only tell it's a nude cause you can kind of see a boot. Okay. Okay. You know, um, and then there's some other ones. So they're very, they're very weird. He did one that's very scary. That's like a, uh, it's like a clown little guy or whatever. He did some, so they're really interesting. But then the ones that he did about like science fiction or whatever, in your head, if you're thinking about like, think about like the cover of Pulp Fiction magazines, like Pulp Sci-Fi magazines. Mm -hmm. I actually have a couple of them hanging around my house. Um, that's the kind of art he did for the science fiction side of things. And like the stories he wrote are things like, you know, one of them is called like, you know, there was a planet and another one is called like the revolt of the Joels, who I guess were these alien race that he kind of made up or whatever. It's super interesting how it sort of, you know, colored his whole worldview. But again, he was, again, these, if you, Asked anybody on the street, what does an alien look like? Mm -hmm. They would not tell you that they look colorful. No. <laughs> gray right. is the only color that we ever, like gray or green. Right. You know, gray or green, not these sort of bright reds and blues and these weird, like these, he, he basically saw Oompa Loompa. Yes. Yeah. The very, very much so. Green, green skinned uh, Oompa Loompas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what we're dealing with. So, uh, yeah, after this incident occurred, actually two months after, he moved to the United States for about five years. Uh, and it was in the United States. He had been there for maybe a month or two. He had learned the story of Kenneth Arnold. And he presumed that, hey, that's what happened to me. That's what I saw. So after following the ufo saga in the us for 3 years and after keeping his his story to himself he eventually entrusted it to uh a couple that you know he he felt uh safe with and uh yeah he just spent like 5 years in the us before he uh ended up going back to italy but that like these two early stories are just chef's kiss man they're beautiful i love them <laughs> They're very interesting. There's, there's so much. If if you were to, one of the common arguments against UFO cases or against UFO stories in the modern day is that there's been so much culture and so much sort of cultural programming around them that people's what people report the gray alien with the big eyes and the probes and whatever. That that can't be trusted because, you know, so much of it is, uh, so much of it is, again, these sort of cultural, um, these cultural artifacts that get added in over time. These stories, though, happen before those sort of cultural artifacts about abductions mm -hmm. happen. Yeah. And in them, you have 
sort of bumbling, you know, neither of these aliens were able to actually abduct the person. No. No. We just said no, and they were like, oh, we respect mm-hmm. that. You know, no means no. Yeah. Like, they just straight up were like, oh, we, well, fine. Yo, oh, okay. And I mean, of course not, right? I mean, though, in the one case, you have these, like, you know, daddy long leg version aliens. And in the other one, you have Oompa Loompas trying to get you, you know? So it's pretty easy, you'd imagine, for a human, a uh, full grown human to say no and then, then be like, all right, we're not going to mess with these guys. <laughs> At the same time, you have this coloration that's not, uh, this coloration that we don't see today. They have, they're wearing clothes. Yep. Which is a very weird thing. They they don't today don't normally wear clothes, and they have noses. Yeah. you know, so much of of how they look has changed in the last 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's absolutely fascinating. I I I love these early cases so much. Yeah, um, and and this is where we're gonna jump to the U.S. because um, the earliest U.S. case, and it's one that like. I think got a brief mention in a newspaper or something like that. Uh, it, it occurred on August 19th, 1949 in, in like probably the worst place that I think an alien should land, which is in death Valley. Like, why would you land in death Valley? <laughs> <laughs> we need some place inhospitable and dry. Yes. We're, we're going to find the, we're going to find one of the few places on earth where life cannot exist. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and kind of similar to, uh, Johannes here, we got a couple of prospectors, you know, uh, I think these guys were a little more professional and they, they see this object crash land. It was a disc shaped object. And these two short little beings jumped out of the craft. And then, and like, we have this like cat and mouse game of these guys chasing these beings through the sand dunes until they disappeared. And when they turned around to head back in the direction of the UFO it had taken off. So like it's just this kind of weird one-off story because there isn't a lot of description with it. It's it just almost seems like, you know, a newspaper uh something a newspaper printed one day because they, you know, they they just didn't have anything. <laughs> but the the early ones in the United States uh until we get to 1952 they there, there's only a couple, and they're kind of devoid of a lot of uh, a lot of detail, like with that first one. So there was another sighting in Red Springs, North Carolina, in December of 1951. But uh, a, a guy named Sam Coley and his two children saw this kind of low, hovering, disc-shaped object, and it had this human-shaped, they said human-shaped, occupant inside. So. Again, another kind of story with little detail to offer up. But in 1952, and and we're we're getting into Flatwoods Monster territory, and we're we're not going to go deep on this case because it's something that should probably be covered. I should probably cover in a whole episode itself. But like this case, I don't think it had a lot of impact in 1952, um, largely because of uh, the, um, the, the Washington merry-go-round that was happening at that time, what they dubbed that, the, the two Washington sightings that had, a, that had occurred in, um, July over two successive weekends. But like the, the Flatwoods monster case is interesting because it, it seems more science fiction-y than, 
uh, I would say, you know, than these previous two cases where you get short aliens, you got really tall, lanky looking aliens with, uh, you know, paper clothing and, and, and just, you know, a, a very weird details that, uh, that accompany mm. this. Like mm-hmm. the Flatwoods monster, it looks really fucking scary. <laughs> like it is. Yeah. It's a, it, it's. I tell you what, it is one of the few alien slash cryptids that I have a T-shirt mm-hmm. of, because it it is sweet looking. Yeah, um, yeah, scary but very cool. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, just to uh, the cover the basics, September twelfth, nineteen fifty two. We're in the tiny West Virginia town of Flatwoods, and uh, Ed and Freddie May, along with their friend Tommy Hare, all saw like this pulsating red light streak across the the sky, and it went down not too far from where they were, and it made it. it and one of the boys allegedly heard kind of like a hissing sound, which um, mm. it it definitely it makes it seem like a a meteor, a close encounter with a meteor because. I've heard people say that, you know, they can hear a hissing sound when a meteor, uh, you know, uh, lands not far by, you know, pretty close by. So mm-hmm. um, it, it kind of has that um, that feature going on. Uh, the the light appeared to go down uh, kind of on a nearby farm. So uh, the brothers alerted their mother, Kathleen May. And uh, there was a National Guard member, Gene Lemon, and together they all headed out into the woods. Lemon leads this group, and he was the first to notice this pair of bright eyes. Um, There's, like, kind of a discrepancy here because they say red, they also say yellow. Um, It's uh, definitely kind of like one of those uh, weird discrepancies in this case, but... Uh, this in like pure science fiction fashion, this monster emerges from this uh, mist, and it is like incredibly tall. the The image that they put forth that they had created for this thing, I, I mean, it's it's a, it looks like a large mechanical monster. It, it's awesome. yeah, it, it it's so. If cool. you've never yeah, seen it's... the Flatwoods monster before, which I'm, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you have, but like it has a spade behind its head. It has these large glowing yellow eyes, metallic arms and hands. It, you know what? I've, I, I've actually always thought it looks like uh, Dracula. Yeah, right. Like, because it has this. It has this. Uh, what's the word? It has this very. So it's this – the image is literally of this, like – it has a conical uh, – almost like a skirt. Like yeah, a skirt underneath exactly. <laughs> and the skirt it, – so it looks like it's wearing a cape because you have this – you have these long kind of billowy uh, parts on the bottom. And then those come up and then there's like this hood mm-hmm. over yeah. it, right, that, that comes up in this point, like Rob was saying, like almost like a spade. And be- behind the hood then you just have these glowing eyes. Yeah. And the arms of it are these like spindly, uh, these spindly little arms with a claw on the end. It's very, very cool, yeah. and very like very, very scary. It's <laughs> it looks very odd, right? And uh, in the artwork, like look up the original artwork for this thing because yeah. it's yeah. floating, and they have a man drawn there in scale, and like. Uh, in comparison, this thing's like ten feet tall or something like that. But uh, 
Yeah, it's it's crazy tall. Yeah. It is crazy tall. Yeah. But uh, you know, it was eventually uh, the I, Blue Book did investigate this case, but they only investigated the meteor part of it. They didn't investigate uh, the the monster sighting because, like, that wasn't something that you know the Air Force really wanted to do. They weren't getting in the uh, the alien game per se. They were they were trying to avoid cases in which uh, humanoids were spotted. But again, we didn't really have that many cases up to this point. Uh, and in the United States, we really wouldn't until 1955. Kelly Hopkinsville kind of really yeah. sets us in the direction of like there's aliens everywhere and they all look freaking weird. Um, and uh, just <laughs> and there and there's kind of a precursor to this in in 1954 in France. So uh, episode 26, I covered uh, the French UFO flap in 1954 and and. What I love about that, uh, those cases is that we're seeing people are saying the same damn thing over and over again. I keep seeing with they keep seeing Mm -hmm. these disc shaped objects and these short beings that are quote wearing diving suits, which is a very like archaic thing to see with Mm -hmm. with a you know UFO. You've got modern technology, and then you've got. I thought you, you you got this little humanoid in which I thought Jacques Cousteau improved on this model, but I guess we're wrong. I guess the diving suit is in this year. So, but there's there's one case in 1953 that uh, it's one of my favorite early cases because uh, it was inve- Gray Barker investigated this case. He flew out to Brush Creek, California himself, and. Uh, this is over a succession of weekends, a succession of Saturdays that uh, these short humanoid beings are seen near uh, these two uh, go- these two gold miners who have a claim nearby. So uh, the one guy's name is John Q. Black, which is which is kind of funny because it's like John Q. Public here, you know, coming forward with his uh, his sighting, and a- another guy named John Van Allen. And they reported two small figures, uh, pilots of a flying saucer, were visiting this creek near their mining claim. So uh, it was following the second encounter over the second successive weekend that uh, they reported their sighting to Sheriff's Captain Fred Preston. Uh, and they described the occupants to the sheriff as a short between two and four and a half feet tall they were broad-shouldered. They wore something like a parka is what they said. So their arms and legs were covered by a tweed-like garment, which, uh, you know, man, that's probably not where you want to bring a, a tweed garment <laughs> is to, you know, a riverbank. But, you know, uh, I, I guess bring it wherever you want. <laughs> but... um. This garment was also like fastened to their their wrists and their ankles, which is uh, another interesting feature. Uh, it, like Rob, they haven't developed buttons no, yet. No, they all right. And I'm sure when they go to the bathroom, they got to just take the whole thing off. It's probably you know a complete uh, performance piece every single time that it happens. But <laughs> uh, 
So, okay, it wasn't successive weekends. It was actually the same day from month to month. So the first appearance was on May 20th, and the second appearance was on June 20th. So uh, each time, uh, the humanoid beings emerged, and they retrieved some water uh, using a, quote, shiny bucket. Okay, cool. Um, Very advanced technology. Very, very advanced. So uh, once the beings were noticed each time, they would re-enter the ship, and they just made a quick exit. Um, And their craft allegedly made a hissing sound as it uh, flew away. You know, it's a similar feature to the Flatwoods monster case here. This sighting garnered so much attention that the town, well... They after they notified the sheriff, uh, they decided to return to the site on July twentieth, and when they did, a whole the whole bunch of the town like word had gotten around uh, about this, so the entire town shows up, and there are people setting up snack stands on this riverbank. <laughs> well, dude, okay, what else are these people supposed to? Do? That's fair. Like this is before you know th- we're talking ball and cup <laughs> territory for like stuff available to yeah. do. You know, <laughs> like your town is called Brush Creek. You're, you know, besides going to the creek, this alien thing, this is like the carnival coming to town. Yeah, yeah it truly is. Uh, so out there, because uh, apparently John Black asked the sheriff, hey, can I bring a gun out there? I want to shoot these things. <laughs> okay. As you do. Yeah. It's the best, the best way to do it. Yeah. So, uh, sheriff said, "No, we don't, we don't want to create a panic." But when they went out there, there were a bunch of bow hunters that had bows and arrows. Nice, yeah. nice. Let's see your bucket protect you now, aliens. <laughs> bucket, stupid, stupid science jerks. Bucket did not protect anybody. Um, so the aliens didn't show up. It was a big bust. And, uh, you know, the uh, the townsfolk were disappointed. Uh, in Gray Barker's book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, there is a chapter devoted to this case. And apparently, while he was out there investigating it, he was arrested. Uh, now, this is Gray Barker, so, you know, it, it, we're talking, like, you know, a, a guy who uh, made up some of the stuff that he printed. Definitely... Uh, <laughs> You know, shady guy in many ways, but apparently he was arrested for uh, investigating this case and wanting to get close to the truth, Chris. And we know when you get close to the truth, you're going to get arrested. You're, you're going to get detained. You're going to be told by some figure that you can't look into this anymore. Stop looking into it. Otherwise, we're going to ice your family, ice your children. You're, you're dead. You're just dead. So It's funny. I... I... You know, I bet if we went to any prison in the country, that's a story we'd hear from a lot of people. You know, they didn't want me to get to the bottom of exactly what is in these stolen radios. (laughs) It's a cover-up. Clearly, it's a cover-up! It's a total cover-up, man. Total. Total. Total cover-up. Total cover-up. So, uh, despite the fact that France was the star of 1954 in the UFO world, and, you know, to a lesser extent, Italy, it had a mass sighting over a... Uh, soccer field uh, so it, it had that going on there is one uh, final case that we're going to touch on here and this is from Coldwater, Kansas in 1954 uh, and this case was investigated by APRO and Coral Lorenzen a teenager named John J. Swain 
was uh, returning to the family farm uh, from the fields around 8 p.m. when he saw a small man from approximately 20 feet away. This figure <laughs> had a very long nose, very long ears, and seemed to fly instead of walk. So Swain witnessed the small man fly towards a saucer-shaped object that was hovering nearby. The man popped into the craft, and it took off at incredible speed. So, like, that that's another great early... Uh, UFOs occupant case because like like really long nose like just the absurdity of some of the features is is so kind of hilarious like it was 8 p.m. I couldn't see well but I saw this man's huge snots <laughs> well yeah I mean it well a, a lot of these stories have those same kind of things where it's like well what do aliens look like well they're probably like humans but let's just give them one feature that's really crazy yeah. You know, so we give them big ears or big eyes or big nose or long legs or, you know, 18 thumbs or whatever, (laughs) you know, we uh, a lot of these stories kind of add on to this with these, you know, aliens are never it's actually it's it's interesting. I had a on our show, we had um, uh, Abel Mendez, Professor Abel Mendez, who's a uh, astrobiologist with SETI and he actually, I, I always thought when I heard cases like this, I always was like, well, that's silly that they'd always look humanoid. But his argument actually was, well, if we look like evolutionarily and biologically at species, the humanoid form is the best one for using tools and is one of the most efficient in terms of sort of existing. And, you know, we, we are able to have big brains and we're able to have like, you know, hands again to use tools and everything else. And his argument actually was that like the human aliens being humanoid is probably true. Mm. Like he expects that that's what we'd see if they were an intelligent, you know, species, yeah. you know, um, I don't know what he'd say though about 18 thumbs. I'll have to ask. That, him. It's a lot, you know, wh- <laughs> why would they need so many thumbs? You, you got to ask yourself that question. We, a lot of thumb rings, yeah. big thumb ring industry in their civilization. I'm assuming that's probably what yeah, it is. Uh, I'm assuming the mood ring, uh, you know, market is so goddamn big right now down there. <laughs> they're huge. Yeah. They're huge on Orky or whatever it was called. Alamo. No, Alamo is the sun. Yeah. Orke. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Orke. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So Chris, what what's going on with the Mad Scientist podcast? What do you got what do you got coming up over there? So we are currently planning our next season and episodes for that will be releasing in February, mm-hmm. beginning of February. Right now I am actually knee deep in research on forensic science. Oh man. Because that's gonna be a big series that we're doing is on forensics. We have a series on we have a series on uh, sort of the looking at some urban legends in the places Marie and I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about that on the hometown horror episodes that were at the end of the last season, but we're looking at some really cool ones. Um we're doing a weird story on coincidences <laughs> and specifically coincidences in media and how that leads to things like, you know, like the Simpsons predicting that Trump would be president or um, all those other kinds of crazy things. Right. Yeah. So that'll be really interesting. And, yeah, we're just we're just having a great time, man. You know, just just living, living large and living fast, Rob, here in my apartment with two cats. That. Is um, the life, man. That if you want to know what podcasting is, that's Chris has de- described it to a T. That's what we do. We're doing great. Yeah. 
We're doing great. Yeah, no, so if you if you enjoyed this episode and you like the sound of my voice for whatever reason, <laughs> um, check out the Mass Scientist podcast. We're available on all of your podcast listening platforms. Um, we're on YouTube. I play Twitch video games occasionally. Um, and yeah, we're a lot of fun. So the Mad Scientist podcast, check us out. Yes, definitely go check out the Mad Scientist podcast. It is wonderful. I've been on there a few times. So uh, if you enjoy my voice too, you can find it over there uh, on a few episodes here and there. Uh, uh, and if you uh, want to uh, check out all the other stuff that I'm doing, uh, find me on social media, you know, Twitter at your UFO guy, Instagram at your UFO guy, hit up that link tree in those bios, uh, special thanks to floats for the use of their song UFO as the intro and outro to this podcast. I love it so much. Um, uh, our logo was designed by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or over a rocky embankment in Italy. In gray, we trust.